If you have your Bibles, please take them now and turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke once again. Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 21 is where we'll be. We looked at Luke 21, 1 to, five, 1 to 4 last time. And so this morning we're going to uh, look at Luke 21, uh, verses 5 through 38. 5 through 30. It's a huge passage, a long passage. Uh, and, you know, I'll uh, tell you the truth, uh, each one of these could... Uh, could um, could probably be a, each of the various sections in here in this passage could be really a one sermon on their own. They can, we can kind of build off this, but I, I preached it as a multiple series of sermons before when I went through uh, Mark. But this time I want to just take it as a whole, as in its entirety, so they get to see the, the whole entirety. Maybe helpfully, hopefully help us to see how these different events that we'll look at really connect uh, to each other, even though. Uh, in Luke's, uh, or even Jesus' telling, there it's, he doesn't um, tell in a, in a chronological order, but there's a there's a logical kind of order to uh, what Jesus is saying. So, uh, Luke twenty one verse five to thirty eight. I will read the text within uh, the sermon today. You know, just thinking about uh, uh, the future. You know, if I ask you right now to list for you know just list in your mind, uh, what are the three things that you're looking forward to in the future? Uh, right now, you know, uh, obviously, you know, uh, you might have said now that you were, we're looking at the Olivet Discourse here, you might say the return of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to imagine that there's some of the things that you are looking forward to, uh, whether it's for some of you who are students, graduation, some of it's uh, some of you who are um, looking for, forward to your career, promotions, jobs. Uh, some of you who are recently engaged, congratulations, and you're probably looking forward to marriage. Uh, some of you who are married are looking forward to children. Uh, some of you are, uh, in these days, looking forward to a home, maybe a, a new home. You might be moving. Uh, you're planning to move, and we, uh, we, uh, we, though we saw, we're sad to see some, hear about some of you deciding to move on, but yet we know that God uh, needs you elsewhere, and so we're thankful for that. The Lord's going to uh, take you elsewhere. And so you may be looking for a new home, look forward to that. You may be some of the simple things, think, looking forward to a new purchase, etc. Or uh, maybe you're looking forward to retirement Yeah, as, you're, as the days are, are going moving on. And whatever you're looking forward to, it impacts, impacts how you live now, right? Some th- the things you're looking forward to the future impact how you live now because it impacts what you do now. Uh, in order to, sometimes you're looking forward to something, maybe even simple, as simple as vacation, you have to plan on, on it. Even if you're not planning on it, you're, you're thinking about it. So, well, I'm going to do this or that or that or this or this about these things. And even, um, and, and so, uh, when we live our lives, we, we, we always live our lives anticipating, usually, the things uh, that we're looking forward to, the things that are going to come next. And it impacts how we live now. Um, and I hope that along the, among the many things that we anticipate, we look forward to, is the return of Christ. And that's the, really the theme of uh, our passage today. That, and the anticipation of the return of Christ would impact then how we live our lives this day. God's Word instructs us to, to live our lives anticipating this one main future event, the return of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 13, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The anticipation of the blessed hope, the appearing of Christ in glory, is a motivation. It motivates us to, to Christians to live godly lives today. 
to say no to unrighteousness and to pursue Christ-likeness. Today we arrive at uh, a passage known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, it's in which Jesus instructs his disciples concerning future days to come so that uh, they will be faithful and vigilant until his return. And that's how it is with almost every revelation of future events within the Bible, within whether it's in the Gospels or in the Pauline epistles or in the general epistles or in Revelation. It's not just designed to kind of, oh, so that you will know in your head, but it's designed to cause us to affect how we live, to live in, uh, with, with comfort, to live with encouragement, to live with strength, to live in faith, to live in trust, all these things, etc., that, uh, that the fu- knowledge of the future affects how we live. Uh, and the, this uh, Olivet Discourse has uh, parallels in the other synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25, that's the lengthier one, and Mark 13, who has the, really the shorter version of this Olivet Discourse. Luke's sort of in the, in the middle. And all three accounts begin with the prediction of the temple's destruction, the temple that uh, Jesus was teaching in, in that last few days of his Passion Week. And which then leads to a discourse on future events surrounding the temple, surrounding Jerusalem, as well as the return of Christ. Uh, Throughout uh, this sermon, uh, like many Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, the prophecies in this passage have a a dual fulfillment, both a near fulfillment as well as a far fulfillment. Just like in the Old Testament prophecies, they have the prediction, in the same passage, there may be a prediction about the the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so there's there's different kind of ways that happens in the Old Testament, and it's happening, happens here in this passage as well. And whereas Matthew's account, or the lengthier account, focuses more on the far fulfillment of these, this all in this of the return of Christ, etc., Luke's account, in comparison, focuses more on the near fulfillment, the near fulfillment of uh, what is Jesus' teaching. And so, as we study this passage, I also just want to add it, just as a little, just a reminder for us, just a, 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 a prod for our, our humility as we come to this text, because it is a difficult passage to interpret it. And scholars, Christian, godly Christian scholars, do differ on the interpretation of these future events. And while we uh, and the scholars may all differ, and even you and I, people in evangelical Christendom, differ on the details, the main point of this passage is quite clear. That one day, the Son of Man will return. He will return, and His return makes all the difference in how we live now. So, uh, as we look at this passage, I'm going to try to teach you uh, uh, what I believe is the correct interpretation of it. Uh, hopefully, that we'll hold that in a, in a humble tension, knowing that uh, we, we may stand corrected when we get to heaven. But hopefully, you will be a Berean and look at it yourself and study and try to understand the scriptures and what Jesus is teaching as well. But I will look at it, and we're going to divide this passage into uh, six, uh, first, almost events, but there's six truths, I'll call them six truths. Concerning the future days to come that encourage Christ's disciples to be faithful and vigilant. So there's six truths. We're going to look at six, almost six events that concerning the future days to come that encourage Christ's disciples to be faithful and vigilant. And Jesus is teaching this to his disciples then, uh, and he's teaching it to disciples today as well, you and me.
So let's take a look then at the, the first truth concerning the future days to come. And the concern the first future days to come is and found in verses 5 to 7. That is the temple's destruction. The temple's destruction. Look at verses 5 to 7 with me of chapter 21. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will be left there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, upon initial reading, Luke's account seems to be uh, continue Jesus' teaching in the temple. Then he's in the temple and he's saying these things because he just talked about the widow, he observed her giving, and then it seems like he's still in the temple. But when we look at Matthew and Mark's parallel accounts, it indicates, it indicates to us there that these things take place as Jesus leaves or heads out of the temple. And as he's somewhere along the way, he's heading back to the Mount of Olives, uh, which, um, where he spends the evenings with his disciples. In fact, when we look at the end of our, our chapter uh, of this text passage, verse 37, 38, we can read this. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. So Jesus would have us, during these first few days of his uh, Passion Week, his final week, he is teaching daily in the temple. That's where the crowds are listening to him. That's where he faces opposition from the religious leaders. But in the evenings, he would return back to the Mount of Olives. That's where he was home base. And there he would often have private discussions, quieter discussions with his disciples or his close disciples. So the, the location in which this uh, discussion, this discourse takes place, uh, as he, he leaves the temple and heads back to the Mount of Olives, and this, that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, uh, is a significant, uh, significant uh, uh, cont- contextual uh, uh, understand, uh, point. The occasion of this discourse is the uh, of this discourse is basically the admiration of the temple. It's the disciples. Some of the disciples it says were admiring this beautiful architecture of the the temple that Herod had built. It was a magnificent work of architecture, and uh, Jewish uh, historians have written about it, as well as actually Roman uh, historians have written about it as well. But it was a it was a magnificent building. It was a beautiful architecture. These uh, the blocks and stones which they used to build this uh, temple were as large as uh, you know just as trucks essentially. There's just one piece. It was huge. It was a uh, it was magnificent in its covered. It was covered with gold uh, uh, gold plates so that as uh, as the sun starts shining on this the temple mount, it was just it would just be blinding. And wherever it wasn't covered with gold, it was painted or it was it was white in color. Uh, Josephus remarked that strangers approaching Jerusalem thought the temple looked like a mountain covered with snow. And this is in the, the Middle East. And so Jesus then responds, as he does uh, to these disciples and their admiration for the temple, he responds with a, a prediction of the temple's total destruction. Not a single stone will be left upon one another, he says. In other words, it'll all be torn down one day. Now, this is a pretty surprise. It's like, you know, it's, it's a surprising, I'm just saying, uh, what's the most magnificent building in uh, San Francisco? Uh, maybe it's the Golden Gate Bridge. It will say, one day the Golden Gate Bridge will be torn down completely. Or maybe we think it's City Hall. We we'll say, one day the City Hall will be 
torn down completely. Not a single block will be. And you know, uh, some of the you know the tall tower, the Salesforce tower, that thing's going to be completely fallen down. And we know, and it, it's like, no way. You know, we'd be like, we'd be shocked and astounded. But notice the disciples don't respond that way. They don't say, "Whoa, no way! That's, is that going to happen?" They're not. Don't seem to be surprised by this announcement. There's no dismay. They don't even ask, "How can this be?" Rather, they ask, "When? When will these things happen? What will be the sign that these things are about to take place?" Now, the reason they ask in this way is because they understand that when Jesus predicted the temple's destruction, they knew that he was describing the coming of the Messiah to establish the kingdom of God, as well as. The culmin- which, con- which consummated the end of the age. And we can know this because we see this par- in the parallel in Matthew 24, 3, there, there is that reference. They start asking, well, when will this happen? When will it be your coming? When will it be the end of the age? What will be the signs? They make those references there. See, not lost upon them was the location of the Mount of Olives where Jesus was communicating this. Here is whom, one whom they believed was the Christ, and here he is on the Mount of Olives talking about an event describing the destruction of the temple. You recall, we just read in our call to worship, Zechariah 14, where it predicts a future battle and capture of Jerusalem. And, that, and, that, and so that was understood, where Jerusalem would be, would be broken down, would be, uh, would be basically um, uh, destroyed. And that would precede the return of the Lord on the Mount of Olives. It would be destroyed by, by nations, basically the nations of the earth. And the return of the Lord would come and then rescue Jerusalem and reign as their king over all the earth. Uh, this is basically in that Zechariah 14. It's really a description of a period of tribulation followed by the return and the establishment of the kingdom. And that's kind of just a historical kind of framework in which we understand uh, the future events. It's going to be a, one day is going to be a period of great tribulation. Then it's going to be followed by the return, the return of the king and followed by the establishment of the kingdom. Now, the disciples had no concept, of course, of a, of a second coming at this point. They, they think Jesus, this is at his first coming, is going to establish his kingdom. So they were expecting Jesus to establish his kingdom that moment, almost very soon. Everything seemed to point to it. But they were wrong. They, didn't, they, they missed the idea of the first coming, or even Christ coming to die for sins. And so Jesus corrects them. And we see in a warning, in a sense, in verse 8 to 11, a second truth or second event that's going to, that they are, that's going to take place in the future days is the disciples' deception. The disciples' deception, verse 8 to 11. Let's look at verse 8 to 11 with me. And he said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, The nations will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. See, Jesus understands that the deceptions that the disciples are going to readily fall into as they are now anticipating the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. And so with quickly three quick negative commands, he says, do not be misled, do not go after, and do not be terrified. See, he knows that there are going to be things that are going to happen even as they wait, they expect Christ to come and what they're going to find in the next few days is that Christ is actually going to die. 
and then he's going to be raised from the dead. But nevertheless, he knows that they're going to wait. They're going to have to wait a little longer before Christ comes to destroy, to deliver Jerusalem, and then to establish his kingdom. So he wants them to know that in light of that, don't be misled to fall away from Christ. Don't be misled to go astray from Christ. There are going to be, first of all, there's going to be people who come and proclaim and profess to be Christ, but they're false. They're false Christ. And um, he wants to know that anyone who has to come to you say that and argue, convince you that they're the Christ, well, they, they aren't. They aren't. Uh, when Christ returns, uh, uh, it will be more than obvious. It will be obvious that he, that person is the Christ. And he tells them to not go or follow after any of these false Christs who proclaim the end is near. What's more, the disciples can be deceived to think that uh, the end is near whenever there's, there's wars and military conflicts. When you hear wars and disturbances in verse 9. Uh, but he wants them to understand, Jesus wants people to understand that when you hear wars and rumors of war and things like that, uh, disturbances, these are really just normal things that happen in our world today. Wars have always existed throughout the history of mankind. Conflicts have existed. In our history, at any moment, you just look around the world, you can surely find a war. They might call war, but there'll be a, a conflict between nations going on at all times. But just because there's wars or rumors of war doesn't mean the world is going to end. And Jesus says, although there are wars, and especially when you are, your nation is particularly in the, in the, the thick of that war, it is then when Christians, disciples of Christ, are most tempted to think that, oh, the end of the, is coming near. But Jesus says, do not be terrified when you're in those places. Don't be afraid. He says that these things, wars, must take place. These things have to happen. They must take place first. It's the inevitable conflicts of, sinful, of a sinful world. And even despite the existence of war, Jesus says, the end does not follow immediately. So that even when you hear wars and, and things like that, these false Christs, it, that's not doesn't mean that the end is coming immediately. What's more, in addition, natural disasters like earthquakes, plagues, pandemics, even uh, famines, as well as great signs from heaven, uh, heaven signs such perhaps such as like comets or eclipses, all of those things are are simply a normal part of this world as well. Uh, a lot of them are are simply the result of the curse of sin, and not again not necessarily a sign that the end is near. So don't be afraid or deceived when these things happen, Jesus says to disciples. I remember even early on in the pandemic, I was uh, at a, a clinic and seeing some medical provider. And he was a Christian, turns out. And he was just, we just started talking about the pandemic. And the first thing he asked me, because no one said he found out I was a pastor, was like, oh man, did, you know, because is it the end of the world? What do you think? <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> these, uh, it's just, it's, it's, these are just normal uh, disease. Damage. You know, I, I didn't say it that way. I said, no, I don't think so. Um, uh, anyways, uh, don't let the chaos of a fallen world overwhelm you or deceive you and to cause you to fall away, to be afraid, to be terrified, or even to be led away from Christ, especially to fall away after false Christ. And then throughout human history, there have been those who have been false Christ's who have basically led people astray, and some have led them to, to kill themselves, you know, to hide in the mountains and, and other terrible things. Don't be deceived by these people. The Lord has told us these things must take place first. 
In both Matthew and Mark's parallel, in fact, Jesus says that such things are what he calls merely birth pangs. They're the, they're the pains that, that precede the actual birth. They're not the actual birth, but they, they just precede it. They're things that happen. And so it's not an indication that the world is about to end, uh, the end is near, but they're just simply part of a world that is expecting the return of Christ. Uh, so that's the disciples' deception. That's the second truth of the days to come. Thirdly, that we need to be watchful for. Third thing, uh, in verse 12 to 19, we find that the third, of, uh, third thing that we must be mindful of is the disciples' persecution. The disciples' persecution. That in future days to come, the disciples of Jesus Christ will face persecution. Verse 12 to 19, a lengthy section here, let's read it. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Very important in the interpretation of this text is that temporal phrase that begins verse 12. He says, But before all these things, it indicates there that something's going to ha- what happens in verse 12 to 19 is going to happen before the things that he's just talked about in the previous verses, in verses um, eight through eleven, these those things that are basically things that happen in the following, but they're not signs of the end of the world. But even before all those, those kinds of things, something else is going to happen. Disciples of Christ are going to face persecution. That is, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be put in prisons, you're going to be brought before, uh, uh, in synagogues, as well as before kings and governors, that is, so both Jewish and Gentile uh, rulers, and they're going to be brought before them, arrested, all for the sake of Jesus' name. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand that when persecution arrives because of his name, do not be discouraged by that, because persecution of believers creates opportunities for the testimony of Christ particularly to those who are persecuting them. It is through often the suffering of Christians, the persecution of Christians, that the gospel is spread. Even uh, in this pandemic, um, we may not like it, but it has caused a movement. A lot of people are moving around. They're moving to where they think they can uh, maybe work, where they can be closer to family, etc. But people are moving around for various reasons during our pandemic. And, the, and we may have our own reasons, but the Lord God has His reasons to move us around. He's moving people around to where the gospel is more needed. And that's what He does. The gospel spreads even through persecution and suffering. And this took place, of course, this, this prediction of persecution of Christians did actually take place in the early church. We see it recorded for us in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John's arrest resulted in their witness before the Sanhedrin. 
In Acts chapter 7, Stephen's arrest gave him opportunity to witness before the Sanhedrin as well. And then, most famously, in Acts 22 to 24 and beyond, really, Paul's arrest resulted in his witness before his fellow Jews, the Sanhedrin, as well as the governors and kings of of, of the various Roman provinces. And eventually he was sent before Caesar. Because of the persecution of the disciples, the gospel spread through their witness. And in the face of persecution, the Lord encouraged his disciples and encourages us. He would, he's promised to give them the words to speak that would, at the moment, that when necessary, that would confound their opponents. Sadly, it would not necessarily lessen the pain of persecution. Even as some would face persecution that would come from their own family members. The intensity of the betrayal is, for some, it would be even to death. That indicates the, just the extreme hatred of Christ that even would overcome the love of family members. And that's, that's how strong hatred of Christ is. But again, Jesus also offers encouragement to those who face persecution. And he reminds them that they, though they persecute you for the name of Christ, they cannot destroy you. Not a single hair of your head can be touched. And that's, and that's just kind of a, a rhetorical way of saying that basically no, they cannot touch your soul. It's, doesn't, it's, not, it's not a promise that they're not going to die because he does say that some of you will die. But rather, it is a rhetorical way of saying that your soul cannot be touched. Yes, they can affect your body, but they cannot affect your soul. They cannot harm you eternally. They can only harm you in this life. They can slander abuse, and even kill you, but they cannot touch your eternal destination. Your eternal destiny is secure because of Jesus Christ. You're secure in Him. And what Jesus then expects of His disciples, really, is endurance. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. To endure, to remain, to abide in Him, to remain faithful and keep trusting in Him, to not fall away when persecution comes. Endurance is one of those key qualities of the Christian life. It is a, it is really the Christian life, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. It's the, the Christian life is a, is not a faith that falls away at the, at the first sight of difficulty or persecution. It is a faith that endures through persecution, knowing that it will lead to a, a greater witness for Christ. Endurance in the faith is evidence of a genuine faith. A faith that keeps on believing, that keeps on trusting in the Lord. And that person, the one who believes and the one who endures, can count on being saved because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So, we see the disciples' persecution uh, that is inevitable, that it comes, that is going to come even before, then, before the, the, the birth pains of the coming of the end of days. Disciples are going to be persecuted. So, Jesus wants his disciples to understand that. Now, fourthly, Jesus wants us to understand the reality or the, the route then of Jerusalem's desolation. Then, in the future days to come, Jerusalem will be desolated. And he describes this in verses 20 to 24. 
this is uh, is getting closer to uh, the what he the initial uh, truth that he brought up about the temple's destruction. Because if the temple is going to be destroyed, which is on the heart of Jerusalem, then somehow in some way Jerusalem is going to be destroyed as well. Jerusalem is going to be, and the word that uh, that we find in the text is the word desolation. Desolation. Look at verse 20 to 24 with me, and let's read there. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It is at this point when we do when we do a harmony of the Gospels. It's at this point when we compare as we compare Luke's account with Matthew and Mark's that Luke's account differs significantly from Matthew and Mark. For instance, Luke leaves out any mention of the intensity of this tribulation, this desolation. He leaves out that no human would survive it if the Lord hadn't cut short these days of of difficulty for Jerusalem. He leaves out the mention of the specific phrase, the prophetic phrase, abomination of desolation, that really comes from Daniel. But what Luke includes here that Matthew and Mark don't is this interesting reference to the times of the Gentiles. And so all this difference that, that, uh, between Matthew and Mark's account for, with Luke's account is a likely indicator, it's most likely explained, best explained, is that Luke is somehow is ex- emphasizing a different aspect of Jesus' teaching of these future days. And that is, whereas Matthew and Mark is focused on the far fulfillment of Jerusalem's judgment, the, the tribulation, the preceding the return of Christ, where that's Matthew and Mark's focus, Luke's focus is on the near fulfillment of Jerusalem's judgment, a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by Roman, or the future Roman emperor, Roman general Titus. And this near fulfillment will be, as Jesus puts it, a time of distress, wrath, and vengeance. It will be days of vengeance. Why is it a day of vengeance? We actually know because earlier Jesus had predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in Luke 19, verse 41 to 44. And it was at the triumphal entry, if you recall. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jerusalem, and including the temple, would be desolated and destroyed at this future day because, Jesus says, uh, they did not recognize the time of their visitation. Essentially because they rejected the Messiah when he presented himself before them at his triumphal entry in that whole week. He came in and clearly taught to them anyone who wanted to. could. Everybody in Jerusalem was, everybody in Israel was Jerusalem for the Passover. Anyone could have heard the teachings of Christ in the temple and none of them responded except for a few. 
And so the destruction of Jerusalem, the desolation of Jerusalem, uh, the, uh, which would be fulfilled in AD 70, would be destroyed by Roman, uh, the Roman general Titus as an act of judgment upon them for the rejection of the Messiah. And uh, then because of that, Jesus also in this section warns his disciples then that in light of this coming judgment, don't stay in the city. He, he warns them to, uh, to, to flee Judea, flee Jerusalem when the desolation comes. And historically, we have records, uh, someone, historical records that uh, many of the Christians did flee. And they flee to uh, the, the surrounding region of Perea instead um, uh, to flee the destruction. And the people that were left were they basically those who were caught up. It was during the Passover as well. And it was um, uh, mostly zealot, a lot of zealots there. But it was just people who were there who didn't get out of the city. And uh, many people were killed in that day. Josephus, in his uh, book on the wars of the Jews, uh, records much of the pretty gory details. Uh, of course, he, he generously over, uh, estimates uh, a million people died as a result of uh, the conquest of Jerusalem. Uh, more conservatively, people estimate probably about 300,000 people died. But that was a time of destruction, desolation. That was a judgment upon the nation for the rejection of Christ. But this city would remain desolated, it would remain destroyed. It would be until, until it says, um, the times of Gentiles is, was, is fulfilled. That is, this destruction of Jerusalem would take place at the hands of, of Romans, of Gentiles. But it would continue, this uh, dominance over Israel would continue over until the, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There's a, a time of Gentile prominence, really, that is, that is taking place even since that day that is, is still is waiting to be fulfilled. And Paul would write about this in Romans 11, 25 and 26. And you can go study there a little further about the, when the, there's a hardening of Israel, even that's taking place until the, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That there's, God is doing a work in saving many Gentiles, bringing them to a saving faith. And though today, and especially since in our last century, Jerusalem as a city has been mostly rebuilt, uh, many Israelites, uh, Jewish people, have returned even to Israel. But yet even Jerusalem, it's still a divided city. Uh, the temple still remains in desolated, desolate, desolation. Um, even still, the Gentiles still rule. And they, you know, though Jerusalem, uh, Israel claims Jerusalem as their capital, many of the nations around the world do not treat it as their capital. And they treat it, uh, they, they have their embassies, etc., in, in Tel Aviv. But nevertheless, uh, um, this is, so this is still that period of the, of the times of the Gentiles. And uh, the destruction, uh, Jerusalem's desolation is predicted. And, until, and it will remain so until the end of the days, uh, the days when preceding Christ's return. We're, we're getting into other prophecies at the point. But the fifth, uh, the fifth truth, the one that, uh, that we're in the main point, really the main um, truth that, uh, that Jesus wants to communicate about future days to come is found in verses 25 to 33. And this is what we call, and at the heart of our sermon, the Jesus Christ revelation. Jesus Christ revelation. <clears throat> Verse 25 to 33, I'll read the whole thing. There will be signs 
in sun and moon and stars. And by the way, the question earlier was, what are the signs? When will the thing, these things happen? And here Jesus begins to answer their question, the disciples' question. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So now Jesus answers the disciples' question about when and what signs pretend his coming. And he first begins to describe that there will be worldwide apocalyptic changes. Not just these little earthquake here and, and you know, disaster here or war there, but it'll be a worldwide, all over the world, the whole world is going to be changing in apocalyptic ways. It'll be cosmic signs in the sun, the moon, stars, as well as in the seas. You and it will be everywhere in the world there's going to be these upheaval from natural kind of disaster well, at least affecting the world but they're really a, clearly a work of God and the whole world will be, will be shaken and people are going to be, men are going to tremble you know even in our days when worldwide disasters take or not worldwide but when natural disasters take place just think of tsunamis or, or big giant earthquakes or tornadoes in the area People in that area are just like devastated. Even around the world, when we hear about it, oh man, I can't believe that happened. There's a, there's a shaking that takes place. But imagine when the whole world, the whole of creation experiences these apocalyptic changes. There's going to be a great terror. There's going to be a great fear. The world is going to be in complete, helpless dismay and fear. When creation responds to the coming of the Creator, when the Son of Man comes, the whole world will know it. Peter, in his epistle, in fact, calls it the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus' words here are are a, a nod to the uh, that His coming is a fulfillment of Daniel's vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. We're there in Daniel 7, 13, 14, as we talked about before, is that this prophecy that one like a Son of Man is going to come. He's going to, and that, that means that He's going to be a human. He's going to, like a Son of Man, He's going to be a human being. And, but yet He will approach the Ancient of Days. He was going to approach before God. And God is going to give Him an everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And this one will come, and he will come in, in power and glory and deliver his people. This is the coming of Christ. This is the Messiah. And 
Verse 28 is specifically the answer to the question that disciples wanted to know. What will be the signs? When will, these, uh, when will, when will we know that this was going to happen? He says, when these things occur, let's look back at the verse, verse 28. When these things begin to take place, he says, what things? Uh, the cosmological upheaval, worldwide dismay, dismay and fear, even the the visual, visible descent of the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Just think about the first time that Jerusalem came into the temple. He came on a, he came on a, on a donkey. But when Jesus comes again, He's going to come in the clouds. He's going to come on a white horse when we think actually talk about Revelation. He's going to come to conquer. It's going to be clear. Everyone's going to see it. And those are going, when these things occur, Jesus says, these are the signs. These are when you can, everybody else in the world is going to be in fear, dismay, terror, ah, agony. But you, disciples of Christ, lift up your heads. You don't have to be afraid. Because when you see that, you know that your redemption is drawing near. When Jesus comes again, all those who do not follow Him will fear and tremble. But those who follow Him... Those who have put their faith in Him can lift up your heads because the redemption is drawing near. Now this is particularly speaking to the people in Jerusalem, to the people of Israel. Their salvation. When the Son of Man, uh, when though they find their city destroyed and their people enslaved and scattered, the Son of Man's return on the Mount of Olives is going to mark the day of their salvation. That the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom that they've been waiting for, hoping for, looking, longing for, is coming near at that moment. And Jesus will come again and sit on the throne of David forever. Now verse 32 that we read is where it says, And I truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. It's a difficult text to interpret. But since Jesus does not make any errors, He doesn't. There's no, uh, and there's no um, uh, textual, variant, textual errors here. The generation that he refers to most likely refers to the generation then of disciples that see the cosmological signs of the as well of the sun as well as the sun of man's return in the clouds. They this generation, that generation, will not pass away until all things take place. The generation of disciples that sees, as one uh, one uh, commentator, right, Daryl Bach writes in his commentary, the generation that is of disciples, that sees the beginning of the end, also sees its end. That is, it's not going to take a long period of time when you start seeing Jesus come down. It's not going to be like a years and years and years and years or I mean hundreds of years before he actually establishes the kingdom. The end's going to come within their generation. They will see Israel's redemption, the Messiah's dominion over the kingdom of God all in their lifetime. It will happen soon at that moment. It will be near. And all this will happen, will take place, be a comfort to them, because Jesus has said so. Jesus' words, heaven and earth can pass away, Jesus says, but His words will not pass away, because He is the God of truth. And so we see then, that just at the revelation of Jesus Christ, is a moment of, it's a moment of great encouragement and comfort to the people of God, and especially who are alive in that day. They will know that uh, they don't have to be afraid because the end will come soon when Christ will establish His kingdom. 
And lastly, we look then at uh, the final truth uh, of the, the, the days to come and that will encourage us to great faithfulness and vigilance. And that is the disciples, which I call disciples preparation. Disciples preparation, verse 34 and 36. Jesus then responds. And here's the, really the so what of all this understanding of what's going to happen in the future. Here's really the, the encouragement. Here's the exhortation for his disciples then, his disciples throughout history, and his disciples today. He says this, verse 34 of Luke 21. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Here's the main application of all that's said. Jesus' word of exhortation to his disciples is that in light of the temple's destruction, the disciples' deception and persecution, Jerusalem's desolation and Christ's revelation, followers of Christ must prepare themselves by being faithful and vigilant till the end. Jesus calls us to be on guard, to watch out. The world is, is a fallen world full of tribulation, disasters and trials. And people respond to these trials in various ways. Some escape through dissipation and drunkenness. But those are really just coverings. They're just, they're, they're, real, they're really still there. It's like people are on drugs. The problem's still there. They're trying to hide and escape, but it's, the problem's still there. They're just hiding it, covering it with, this, uh, with uh, their drugs or, or alcohol. Others will respond to trials and persecution and things like that with simply being overwhelmed with worry. They'll just be overcome by worry. They'll be just frozen. They can't continue. They can't proceed. Either way, no matter how people respond, it is, it is a failure to trust in the Lord. It's a turning away from trusting in the Lord. And people who do not look to the Lord will be surprised as if they're suddenly caught in a trap when the day of the Lord comes. And Jesus points out that it will certainly come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. So God's people are to be on guard for the lies. They're also to be alert. Verse, uh, th- verse 36. Be, that is, be aware of what's happening. Understand what's happening in our world. When you hear about wars and, and these, these kinds of things, no, that's the curse of sin. When you hear about disease, you hear about d- pandemics around the world, that's the curse of sin. When you hear about just the persecutions of Christians, well, that's the curse of sin. That's the hatred of Christ. Understand these things are happening because Jesus already told us they're going to happen. These are part of living in a fallen world. When people come and say, I'm the Christ, I'm the Christ, follow me. You understand that's a false Christ and you don't follow them. All these things that take place in our world are just simply uh, are to be understood, to be on the alert for, to understand, and to instead to be praying. People, God, to be faithful, trusting in the Lord, calling upon Him for strength to escape. To resist, ultimately to escape so that they can stand before the Son of Man in His kingdom. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.13 these words, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us be prepared for action for the days that will come when we face deception, persecution, and when our world is falling apart even. For we know that our hope is in seeing Jesus Christ return one day. And when he, whether He comes in our lifetime or not, our strength still comes from Him. 
from our Lord whom we look to. So let's be on guard. Let's keep on the alert. Let's be praying to God, trusting in Him so that we will have strength. We will not be shaken. For everyone who trusts in Him will stand before Him one day in strength, not in fear. I know we in conclusion then, this, that's all six uh, points. We covered a great deal of events, in fact. That's, uh, and this text morning, and Jesus, in fact, what makes it hard is that Jesus doesn't describe these events in chronological order. But let me summarize it for you just briefly chronologically. Is Jesus' words here in, this, in, the, in the Olivet Discourse, it begins with the disciples' persecution. We see that in Acts. Followed by the disciples' deception as false Christ, wars, disasters come on the scene. We, and that happens throughout the, that, that early period of the church even. And then the temple will be destroyed. We see that in AD 70. Along with Jerusalem until the time of Gentiles are fulfilled. And these events are all near fulfillment of similar events that would happen in the far future. Far future culminating in Christ's return to establish His kingdom. And these, therefore, these, all these future days are a motivation for us to be faithful and vigilant in our walk with the Lord. Jesus has told us the future, and His words are true, and His words will not pass away. And so, therefore, let us allow His words to impact how we live here and now. Until he returns. How will you live in response to these truths? Number one, let me give you three questions as meditating. How do you respond to the birth pains, or how will you respond to the birth pains of this fallen world? When disasters strike, when, when, uh, dis- people come and f- they claim to be f- Christ, when, uh, diseases ravish our world, and famines hit, when these things are just part of a fallen world, when they strike your life and your world, your community, how will you respond? How do you respond? And the second question, how do you respond to the persecutions that that you will face for Christ? Does Christ help return, help you to not fear in the face of persecution? And persecution uh, may not be happening to the extent that's happening around the world, but it, it may come for Americans. Then third question, how does knowing the future days to come affect how you live for Christ today? As a Christian, will you live a godly life to honor Christ? Or will you continue living your life just however you please? If it's the latter, you one day you're going to be surprised. The return of Christ will come in surprise. And you will find yourself, instead of standing in the Lord, you'll be surprised and fearful and respond. And when the world falls apart, let us... Be strong in the Lord, even as uh, we wait for Christ's return. Let it impact how we live here and now. Let's live, pursue godly, righteous lives, knowing that all the things that take place, and especially persecution, are going to be give open up doors for the gospel. And we thank God for our pandemic. It's not been pleasant, but we thank God because it has opened doors for us to be a witness in ways that we had not been done before. And we acknowledge that. We, we acknowledge that it's the hand of God upon His church in this part of our world. So let us uh, keep trusting in the Lord. Let us turn our eyes to Him.